Welcome to Rumblestrip. This is Erica Heilman. I believe in government. Behind closed doors, you owe it to your bosses to tell them what you think. But it's up to your bosses, in this case the President of the United States, to act on that advice or not. That's Robert Ford, the last U.S. ambassador to Syria. Ford arrived in Syria right before the protests began there in 2011, and he was witness to the very beginnings of the civil war there until the Obama administration pulled him out over security concerns in 2012. He continued to work on the crisis in Syria back in D.C. until 2014 when he left the Foreign Service. Now, Robert Ford lives with his wife Allison in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, and he describes it as pretty much as far from the Middle East as you can get. We spoke in his living room on a rainy day last week, after the chemical weapons attack in Syria and before Trump's military response. He fit me in between calls with CNN and Al Jazeera to talk less about policy and more about his personal experience in Syria and the role of diplomacy in the Middle East. Here's Robert Ford. When you were called, and it had been five years since there had been an ambassador in Syria, why then and why you? I was the um, deputy ambassador in Iraq, and um, it was my third assignment in Iraq during the war. And after my second assignment, I got a really nice job. I was the American ambassador in Algeria, in North Africa. And Algeria is a really great country, and I had a beautiful residence looking out over the Mediterranean. And then Condi Rice called and said, Robert, we need you to go back to Iraq. And I said, oh, come on, I've already gone there twice. I mean, I've been there already three and a half years. So you can't say no. So I went back and they said, don't worry, we'll take care of you. You go back and we'll take care of you. So after I'd been there almost two years again, third time, they called and they said, okay, we'd like to make you ambassador to Syria. And I said, this is my reward for going back to Iraq. And they said, they said, oh, it'll be great. You'll love it. And I said, no, you know, Bashar al-Assad's horrible. I mean, he's known throughout the region as, as, you know, a vicious dictator. I said, if you send me there, I'm just going to end up being in fights constantly with them. And they said, no, no, you know, it'll be good. And President Obama wants to start, you know, a dialogue with Syria. So I went. But I knew even before I landed that it was going to be a tough job. I was held up for a long time in Washington by a group of neoconservative senators, including uh, McCain and Senator Inhofe from Oklahoma, Marco Rubio, all of whom uh, said to Obama and said to Clinton, um, we don't want any American ambassador in Syria. So, What was their objection? They, they thought that sending an ambassador would be a signal to Assad that we didn't care about his atrocious dictatorial methods ruling Syria. This is before the uprising right started. Right before. This is 2010. The uprising started in 2011. So finally Obama, after waiting about eight months and, and the nomination was blocked in the Senate, Obama sent me out on a one-year recess appointment at the very end of 2010. In fact, I got to Syria at the beginning of 2011. And just a month after I got there, the uprising started. 
when you first got to Syria in early 2011, what was your mission there? What were you going to do? What did you think you were so going my to be instructions, capable of doing? Well, I, I mean, I talked to a lot of people, including um, Secretary of State Clinton and others. So what they wanted me to do was to start talking to Assad and his top aides, the foreign minister, the national security advisor in Damascus, about a host of issues where we disagreed sharply with the Syrian government. That could be anything from uh, Arab-Israeli peace to uh, Syrian support of terrorist groups such as Hezbollah and some of the groups fighting us in Iraq. We still had soldiers in Iraq at the time. The Syrian chemical weapons program was on the agenda. Uh, Human rights, of course, was on the agenda. So we had a, it was not an easy agenda. And um, Did Assad, was he welcoming you? I mean, did he want you there? Yeah, I think he did. I think uh, they saw an ambassador as a, a step towards better relations with the United States. Um, when I first met him, I, you know, I raised all the issues I just mentioned with you. And it was not a very easy conversation. It was pretty tough. Um, he actually raised his voice when I brought up human rights, yelled at me. But everybody was excited that there was a new American ambassador in Damascus because we hadn't had one for five years. Um, and so they were all very curious. Does this mean the Americans are going to maybe help uh, Syria get the Golan Heights back from Israel? Does this mean maybe the Americans are going to stop banging on Syria about Hezbollah? Maybe the Americans are going to stop banging on Syria about Iraq and its support of insurgents fighting the American army. I think they were pretty disappointed when they heard what my instructions were, but at the start there was this sort of feel-good era. Right. When you met with Assad, can you talk about how that goes? Mm-hmm. I imagine there's a there is much that is not spoken that's happening between you. And how how do you measure that? So there was a lot of protocol the first time I met him. And it was on national television, not live, but, you know, the evening news. And so they were very insistent, you know, Mr. Ambassador, your car is going to pull up here. You get out, walk down this red carpet, turn right here and, you know, stop here. And then they'll play the national anthem of the United States and the national anthem of Syria. And you need to um, bow your head when the Syrian flag is lowered and bow your head again when the American flag is lowered. And it just is a sign of respect. And then you'll walk in and the president will stand here and you'll stand there and there'll be a lot of pictures. And and then we went into a meeting just with him and me and the foreign minister I mentioned, Wally Mualam. And that meeting took about an hour. Um, Assad's English is quite, quite, quite good. He studied medicine in Britain. He was actually supposed to be an eye doctor, but his older brother, who was going to be president, was killed in a car accident. The older brother wrapped himself around a a statue at the airport at very high speed was killed. So um, in that meeting, I guess what I would say is Assad, I mean, he was polite and he was not stuffy. I mean, he would engage in a back and forth. um, So you could argue with him. But he said a lot of stuff that we knew wasn't true. And I think he knew we knew. And so you can't, in a discussion like that, if you don't call him on it, then it appears that the Americans accept it. And you can't leave him with the impression that the Americans accept it. So then you have to call him and say, well, actually, that's not the case. 
You have to do it politely. You're talking to the president of the country, but you have to do it. So as I said, for example, on uh, human rights and also on the issue of their support for terrorist groups, got kind of testy. A lot of diplomacy is person to person. It's building uh, relationships and building trust. And so um, as you build relationships, you get a better sense of what the other person wants, what their interests are. And number two, how credible they are. Do they tell the truth? Do they not tell the truth? Do they hide stuff? I think all people on some level, especially in a conflict situation, hide things. That's, that's normal. But do you get a pretty good understanding of where they're coming from or not? Um, Bashar al-Assad, from my two meetings with him, I can conclusively say that the man lies. And we had to call him on it, and he didn't like it, but he just lies. What did you, what did you imagine? And, and this is also a question well, about Well, nobody these... expected that there would be an immediate agreement on all issues. We all expected, um, when I went out, that it would be a long process to get Syria to change any of its policies. Did you believe it was possible? Did you believe that you could affect could affect change there? I didn't know, but it was my assignment to try. So I wouldn't say that I went there very optimistic, as I, as I mentioned, I was not enthusiastic about going there when they asked me to. But at the same time, you can't go into a job and say, well, this is going to be really hard, it's hopeless. You have to just, you know, roll up your sleeves and say, if we only have a 10 or 20 percent chance of um, getting this done, of changing their minds, how would we make that 10 or 20 percent work? What would be step A? What would be step B? What would be step C? And so that's that's what we did. A lot of that in diplomacy means trying to figure out who's influential in the country, who's influential in the government, and then putting arguments to them about why what they're doing that we don't agree with is not in their best interest, whether that be short-term or maybe medium-term or long-term. But nobody thought that we were going to have, a in a year, we were going to have a wonderful relationship with Syria. I don't think anybody expected that. Very soon after you arrived there, the uprising began, and you were witness to peaceful protests yeah. that turned violent. Right. And can you tell the story of Holmes? So uh, it wasn't Homs, it was Hama, which is a, the next city north. Syria has a big international highway that goes between Jordan and Turkey. And um, Hama is about four-fifths of the way north, going to Turkey from Damascus. It's just south of Aleppo. And uh, there were huge protests there, peaceful. Um, the week before I went, I sent uh, two of my diplomats up to look at it. And uh, there were a few more demonstrations, but there was going to be a very big one on Friday, the following Friday, after prayers at the mosque. And we began to hear that the Syrian army was going to go in. There had been uh, bloody protests in this same city in 1982 with thousands killed. And uh, I said, if I sit in Damascus and there's violence on Friday, people are going to call me and say, what the hell happened in Hama? And if I say, well, I'm sitting in my office and we're 200 miles away, but this is what we've seen on TV. 
That is not going to be a particularly convincing answer to Secretary of State Clinton or the White House National Security Advisor, Tom Donilon, or whoever. So we went up. The protesters were shocked that the American ambassador came all the way to Hama. As I said, it's about a 200-mile trip. And they were absolutely wonderful. I mentioned the hospitality. We got all kinds of wonderful food and People were very nice. They took me to a hospital where people who had been shot in previous protests were being treated. Um, the Syrian government was furious. There was no violence that day, I'm happy to say. But the foreign minister, Walid Mualim, uh, later said to me, you instigated the protest. And I said, minister, don't be ridiculous. They're protesting every day or two up in Hama. I said, the fact that I was up there doesn't change the fact that they protest every day or two. It has nothing to do with me. You have a problem um, in terms of the way you govern people, and that's why they're on the streets. Again, it was not a very happy conversation. So at that time, you were both, you know, you became sort of um, an idea for Syrians, mm -hmm. You were, and you were both loved and you were hated. And mm -hmm. I wonder what role your ego plays in management of yourself in a time like that. Does that make sense? Yes, I mean, it does. So I'm the kind of person I'm not trying to get on the front page of the newspaper. It's just not, why do I live in St. Johnsbury, Vermont? I mean, it's quiet. It's out of the way. That's my personality. However, I do feel very strongly, this is one of my core beliefs, that people in the Middle East and North Africa are basically nice people. Um, they're honorable people. And they deserve to have their fundamental human rights respected the same way Americans or French or British or Germans or Japanese or Mexicans do. Um, there is a United Nations Universal Charter on Human Rights that enumerates, that lists the basic human rights, which include things like freedom of speech and freedom of religion and freedom to assemble and protest peacefully. And Syria signed that charter. And I feel very strongly that Arab governments should treat their people with the same respect for their basic human rights and dignity that we expect American government to treat Americans. So it wasn't hard for me to speak out. I didn't, I was not looking forward to the constant harassment and attacks from the Syrian government and its henchmen. Syria is a nasty police state. As I mentioned, it's a brutal dictatorship. And they have four different secret police services. Anytime a country has more than one secret police service, you know it's a tough place. Syria has four. So I knew when I started speaking out publicly that I was going to get a lot of crud thrown on me. But that's the price. If you believe strongly in an idea, you have to speak up for it. I don't think I could have lived with myself if people had been marching peacefully, calling for peaceful change, and getting shot or arrested and tortured, sometimes tortured to death, and I knew about it, and I said nothing. So there was a clarity mm -hmm. about your this core belief, but is there also a clarity about the utility of that belief in that particular place? I mean, this is the thing that's so fascinating to me about being an ambassador in a place yeah. like Syria is um, you are 
on in another planet culturally. So, so one of the criticisms that has been uh, leveled against me, and it's not entirely wrong, is that by my speaking out in support of the protesters' rights, I encouraged them to keep protesting and the repression got worse. Um, whereas if uh, that this argument would go if I had kept quiet, um, maybe the protest movement would have eventually died out. Um, I have two responses to that. Number one, it started without the American ambassador saying a thing. Um, we didn't speak out for the first couple of weeks because we, we were hoping it would stop. We were hoping the government violence would stop. So it was only when it, it became really severe that we decided we had to speak out publicly. Speaking in private is different. but um, And the second is that uh, if the Americans say nothing, people will look at them and say the Americans don't care. And we do care. I think um, respect for the uh, individual human rights of any person is part of our DNA. And uh, so we had to speak out. So you were pulled out in 2012 because... Our embassy was an old apartment building. It wasn't a purpose-built embassy. It was a 1920s apartment building that we had taken over, move a wall here, change a wall there, put an iron door here, but it wasn't very secure. Structurally, it wasn't secure. And once we started having car bombs in Damascus, we worried that a car bomb would bring down our embassy because it's not a purpose built. It structurally wasn't very strong. So we asked the Syrian government if they could close the road in front of the embassy and allow no car traffic. And to be fair to the Syrian government, they offered to close one lane of the road, but they wouldn't close both lanes. Um, and we just didn't, we couldn't get enough setback. You need a lot more than 15 feet of setback for a large car bomb, for a weak building, when you, structurally weak building. When you were pulled out, when you left in 2012, mm -hmm. what, um, I want to know what you left behind, who you left behind. So we left behind uh, a large Syrian workforce at the American embassy. Our embassy in Damascus had over a hundred Syrian employees, and as the situation got worse and worse in late 2011 and 2012, I started having big staff meetings with all of them, 120 people in the room, both Americans and Syrian employees. And I, I'd say I don't, you know, we don't want to close, but we're watching security, and I don't, I, I'm not threatening to close. That's not why I've asked you here. I just want you to know we're, we're concerned about it and we'll give you as much advance notice as we can. So when we finally did close, I don't think the Syrian staff were particularly surprised because I'd been meeting with them every two, three, four days and describing it was either getting better or it was getting worse. But we left, we left them behind. They couldn't come out with us. They're Syrians. They have Syrian passports. They're Syrian citizens. What was that? Um, so I remember... departure like? Well, one of my um, Syrian staff, who had worked at the American embassy, oh, for more than 20 years, his name was Jabber. And I remember um, my last day, um, I, had, I had Jabber and a couple of other uh, Syrian staff come up to my office because I wanted to say a special goodbye to them. 
And Jabber looked at me and said, what is going to happen to our country? And, you know, I didn't want to say, oh, it's going to get better, because if I thought it was going to get better, why am I closing the embassy? So I had to say to him, Jabber, I, I fear your country is going to go into a terrible civil war. There will be destruction. There will be car bombs. There will be terrorism. Uh, the value of the Syrian pound will shrink. So if you have assets in Syrian pounds, I advise you to get them into dollars as quickly as you can. Um, the value of your pensions paid in Syrian pounds will become worthless. And so the faster you can move into some kind of other currency, euros or dollars or something, uh, the better it'll be for you as the country descends into this mess. And, you know, Jabber loved his country. He loved Syria. But it was just heartbreaking to tell this person, your country is about to descend into total chaos. And I think he knew it, but he was hoping that I would be able to say, oh, it may not be this bad. It may not be that bad. We had uh, here in St. Johnsbury about two months ago a Syrian artist named Mohammed Hafez who displayed his artwork at the uh, St. Johnsbury uh, Library and Art Gallery, which we call the Athenaeum. And I saw Mohammed about a month ago socially down in uh, Connecticut where he lives. And we were talking about Syria and I said, you realize, Mohammed, with the fall of Aleppo, you will never be able to go home again now. The Syrian government has won the war and if you go back, they'll arrest you. And I, I, it, was, it was very wrenching. I mean, Mohammed didn't say anything. He just kind of looked at me. And then after about maybe five or six seconds, he kind of nodded and he said, yes, you're right. But it was like I'd hit him in the stomach. So it's, it's very sad. And I'm not even talking about people like the father who lost those two twins that we saw on television Tuesday. You know, I don't think, Erica, an American can even imagine what it would be like to see your country descend into a civil war like that. But it doesn't do any good to get real depressed about it. You just have to keep plugging away. I quit my job at the State Department in 2014 out of just enormous frustration with the Obama administration. It was just getting worse and worse and worse in Syria. The administration wasn't doing anything about it. We could tell by 2014 uh, that extremists were going to be taking over eastern Syria and western Iraq. We could see that coming. And I just didn't want to be personally associated, personally associated, with a policy that was so obviously failing. And President Obama kept ignoring advice from me and frankly advice from John Kerry, Secretary of State. And it was just going from bad to worse. And I didn't want to be personally associated with it anymore. So I left the administration in, in more than a little frustration. In many ways, I think Barack Obama was a wonderful president, but on this, I don't think he understood the dynamics of the situation and how it was going to go. There's a wonderful expression, a stitch in time saves nine. 
And I think we lost our chance in 2012 and 2013 for that stitch in time. Um, you believed that we should be supporting moderate um, mm -hmm. opposition, and then a year later, that changed. Did you change your mind, or did circumstances change on the ground, or both? Well, I d actually, I didn't really change my mind. There was a McClatchy news service story that said I did, but um, the newspaper reporter didn't pay attention to the end of my remarks. She paid attention to the front of my remarks. Let me tell a story to the listeners about the Syrian opposition. So in 2013, uh, before we were giving any help to the uh, rebel fighters of any kind, but we were in touch with them and we were talking to them. They were attacking a Syrian air base. And one of the commanders that I talked to, a guy named uh, Abdul-Jabbar al-Gadi, was a colonel who had defected from the Syrian army and had joined the rebel fighters. Uh, colonel al-Gadi worked with an al-Qaeda offshoot in Iraq to take this air base, which they had been trying to take for a long time. And there were several pictures of Colonel O'Gady standing next to this Al-Qaeda commander with his long hair and his beard and all that. And uh, I called O'Gady on the phone. He was over in northern Syria. I was in Washington at this point, 2013. And I said to him, how could you, how could you work with those people? And especially, how could you be in a photo with them? You are undermining any effort that people back here are trying to get you material assistance. And he said, you give us nothing. He said, I'm fighting Bashar al-Assad tooth and nail. I said, and if I don't go after them, they'll kill me. And you want to lecture me about who I should work with when you don't help us at all? How dare you? If you can't help me, then I have to make alliances with anyone I can. You know what? Okadi was right. He's absolutely right. Doesn't mean that he likes Al-Qaeda. I happen to know he doesn't. But uh, if you don't give people an alternative, sometimes they'll do things out of pure desperation. So you think that there was a chapter of time when things might have been oh, different, right? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. That's what we were trying to explain to the president. But president was concerned, not without reason. I mean, he asked good questions. I always found his questions very sharp. Um, but the president was concerned that if, if the material assistance didn't help, then eventually we'd have to send in our own military forces. This was the so-called slippery slope argument. And I used to tell the president, but Mr. President, if we don't help people like this guy, O'Kady, um, we will end up having to send in military forces. It'd be much better to have O'Kady deal with this and have him shun al-Qaeda, not work with them, and have him put down al-Qaeda, not work with them. Um, but if we don't help him, then these extremists are going to grow. Those young hotheads are going to take over from the more uh, prudent and moderate commanders if we don't help the more prudent and moderate commanders. You know, you're, you're now in a unenviable circumstance of being um, knowledgeable and watching us start again with a new administration in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And when you look back over decades in, in a career in the Middle East, what, where are the blind spots? I mean, I guess the question is, how do we trust 
that there is a right way anymore, given the track record? And where? what do you know that you don't know? So I think uh, Americans should approach conflicts in foreign countries with a great deal of um, humility and a great deal of caution. That's going in. Understand that there will be passions and there will be uh, scores built up over the years between combatants that we don't begin to understand, clans, individuals, tribes, whatever it is. And we will never understand a foreign conflict nearly as well as the people on the ground do. They're the ones that are ultimately going to decide the fates of their countries, not Americans. And so we need to approach all that with humility. But I also think there is evil in the world. And just as we saw with that gas attack the other day, uh, where children are killed in large numbers, and it's not the first time, um, I don't know if any of the listeners saw, but there was, um, after that gas attack, the Syrian Air Force went and bombed the only hospital in the town. So I think for Americans to ignore evil is also a mistake. Um, that will come back and bite us someday. Doesn't mean we have to send in the American Air Force all the time. I actually don't want the American Air Force in Syria, and I don't particularly want it in Iraq either. I'd rather have Syrians and Iraqis dealing with those problems. But I do think there are better people and worse people. And in cases like this, you need to help the relatively good ones. What is your sense of what's happening in the State Department right now? The numbers of people not employed? Oh. <laughs> I guess I'm wondering, to do effectively what you are suggesting good diplomacy does, it yeah. requires connective tissue. One of the things that the Trump administration, I hope they're going to learn, it's too early to know yet, um, but one of the things the Trump administration did coming into office, and during their campaign as well, is they reduced the Middle East to an essentially military problem. If you just bomb the heck out of the Islamic State, that fixes it. But that ignores the recruitment issue. Why do all these young men join them? We can bomb and kill a bunch, but the bad guys recruit more. We bomb and kill them, and they recruit more, and the cycle goes on and on. And we end up with what a very good New York Times war correspondent, Dexter Filkins, called the forever war. And I don't want to be in the forever war. I just don't. I don't want our military to be in the forever war. So we have to look at the political, economic, and social issues behind the recruitment. There are pretty good opinion surveys now of Arab public opinion in the Middle East. It's something we didn't have 20 years ago. If you look at these opinion surveys, there are a couple of things that stand out. Why do people join extremist groups? Why do they join protest movements? Economics is number one. Young men without hope tend to join, or more likely, I should say, are more likely to join extremist groups. Why is that? Well, go back to the culture. It's not a culture where you date you have to have a job and you have to get an apartment and then you can marry and have a family and etc. Um, there's a, it's a big no-no in Arab culture um, to be an unmarried mother or an unmarried father. Um, that is socially shaming. Without jobs, young men and young women for that matter can't start families and in their culture 
If you don't have children, your life is incomplete. So that's just intrinsic to the culture. And so economics is a big part of extremist recruitment. Um, the second is a perceived uh, oppression of people. I mean, lack of human rights and, and such things. Um, that comes through also very clearly in the opinion polls. And then corruption comes in as third issue. With all due respect to our fine people in uniform, an F-16 can't really deal with corruption. And special operations forces can't really deal with lack of human rights. And a Marine artillery battalion just deployed to Syria two weeks ago can't really deal with economic failings of a country. So we have to we have to think about how much are we willing to engage on those problems if we don't want to be in the forever war. I don't think the Americans have to do it by themselves. We need to get help from countries like Turkey and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and Kuwait, France, Britain. Um, but to just say we're not going to deal with it at all, which basically was the Trump administration's position when they took office in January, that tells me we're going to be in the forever war. What happens in Mosul after ISIS is kicked out? What happens in Raqqa in Syria after ISIS is kicked out? Is there reconstruction? Are there police who respect people's basic rights? Is there a government that is um, treating people reasonably? Or is it just we got rid of the tyrants of the Islamic State to put in new tyrants? backed by the Americans. If it's new tyrants backed by the Americans, I think it's fairly safe to assume we will be in the forever war. That was Robert Ford, former U.S. ambassador to Syria. I want to thank Robert's wife, Alison Barkley, for setting up this interview. If you have a comment on the show, I'd love to hear it. Just go to my website at rumblestripvermont.com also, if you want to make a donation to the show, I'd be really grateful. There's a green donate button at the top right corner of my website. Again, that's rumblestripvermont.com. And my last little plea, if you make a comment about the show on iTunes, that helps new listeners find the show. This is Erica Heilman. Thanks so much for listening.